0: Good to see y'all tonight. Um, some of you already know that I've written a book. Uh, it's called Finding Jesus. Um, and some of you already bought it. Uh, it's, the purpose of the book is it, it's, a, it's a look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in uh, 12 different chapters uh, that deal with his life. Uh, my hope is that people will give it to folks who don't know the Lord so they can come to know him. I think a lot of people in our culture think they know what Christianity is all about, but they've never really figured out who Jesus is. So that's what the intention of the book is. The secondary intention is that Christians will read it and it will grow their faith. So I've broken it up to where it can be read over the course of a year like a devotional, or you can just read it like a regular book, however you choose. Um, But uh, it's available on Amazon, although you have to, if you want to find it on Amazon, you have to look it up under my name, because if you type in Finding Jesus, it gives you all kinds of results that aren't this. Um, but I also ordered a bunch of them, and they'll be available at the church uh this Sunday and next um some of them are there are here tonight, and they're twenty dollars. But if you want to give one to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, just take it so uh th- that's the intention of the book um so I hope it blesses you if if it does, let me know if it doesn't, then complain to Merle or something so <laughs> um <laughs> The other thing, the uh, even more exciting thing, as you see in, in your week, midweek notes, we do have a candidate for uh, our student minister position, and this, is, this has been a process that didn't take as long as I thought, but not because we hurried or rushed, but because the Lord was good to us. We went through a very thorough process and looked at a lot of candidates and a lot of very good candidates. And we've found one that we really feel excited about. I can't tell you his name yet because of the the way things are these days, it would just take one person posting something on Facebook and it would get back to his church and he doesn't know if he's coming here yet until he comes and meets with us on the 14th and 15th. And so uh, we don't want to jeopardize his current ministry, but he is a a student minister at another church and out of the area, uh, has a family, and uh, we are excited about him. So be in prayer for that weekend. Uh, also, we're baptizing two teenagers this Sunday and one next Sunday. So God's continuing to bring uh, teenagers to know the Lord even without a youth minister. so that's exciting. So if you would, let's let's talk tonight about why does God seem different in the Old Testament. That's our our subject tonight and and here In this tough question series, I, I kind of start th- through, all through the fall talking about questions that skeptics often have about the faith, accusations they level against us. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a different kind of look. We're going to be looking at specific scriptures and things that give Christians trouble when you read the Bible and you go, why is it this way? Uh, or what does this scripture mean? But tonight we're going to talk about one that I think bothers skeptics and Christians alike. In fact, I first really heard this from one of the best Christians I know. And this was a lady at another church when I was Uh, a little bit younger. She was on the search committee that brought me to that church. She was a good friend. Her husband was a retired pastor who was now one of our deacons. She was a Sunday school teacher and and one of them. She was highly educated and, and a real student of the Bible. But that year, just sort of like I've done here, I challenged the whole church to read the whole Bible. And she'd never done that. She'd never just sat and read Genesis all the way to Revelation straight like that. It had always been you study it along with your Sunday school curriculum or the devotional book you're reading. And so in the middle of the year, uh, she kept saying to me things like, well, I just don't get this, I I don't like the way God is acting in this book, or I don't understand why he's like this. And and finally she just came to me and said, I'm sorry, but it just seems like it's a totally different God in the Old Testament than the one I know. And I'm I'm used to the God of the New Testament, the God of the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, is very merciful, he's very compassionate. Uh, But here in the Old Testament, he's just angry and violent all the time, and I don't understand why he's so different. And skeptics will charge, will level those charges too. They'll quote out of context passages from the Old Testament especially. And they'll say, can you believe that there's still people alive today who believe in a God like this? Do you believe that we would let people like that teach our kids or serve in government? Can you believe that those are our neighbors? Those are dangerous people. So what do we say to this question of why does God seem different in the Old Testament? Well, I've got three things for us to talk about. Number one, by the way, I actually sent the right notes to Sharon this week, so you have them before you. Um, Number one, it isn't true. It's not true that God's different in the Old and the New Testament. We'll talk about why it seems that way in just a moment. But first of all, when you read, when you really read, when you get beyond just a surface level reading, and it takes several times to go through the Old Testament to start to see this, you see the same characteristics of God in both Testaments. There's love and compassion in the Old Testament. This is how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we all know in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. On the other hand, we see in both Testaments, there's the idea that God is a God that punishes sin. I'm not going to give you a specific scripture because there's plenty to show you in the Old Testament, but... Just the general theme of the Old Testament seems to be God dealing with his people. And, and just talking to one of you tonight, you said, it seemed like Israel was always in trouble with God, and, and he was. Uh, the, the nation of Israel was. I, I bet if you're, if, when your kids were two or three, and if they could have talked to their friends, they would have said, man, it seems like I'm always in trouble with mom and dad. And that, that's the way it was. It, it really did seem like that. Although you loved them just as much as when they got to be four and five and six and were a little more manageable. And that's the story of, of Israel in the Old Testament. They were always running afoul of God, and God had to discipline them. And yet we see it in the New Testament too, Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. God's discipline is because of his love, his discipline of us. We see grace in the Old Testament, all, all over the Old Testament if we know where to look, even in stories that seem like they're stories of punishment and wrath. I, I, my example is, uh, the one I love to use is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is one of the sadder stories in the Old Testament about Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. And that's the fall of man. That's the source of all our troubles. And yet, in the midst of that, you see lots of signs of grace. For instance, it says that God made them garments of skin because they were naked, and they realized for the first time that they were ashamed of themselves, and God covered their shame. Now, how do you get garments of skin? Where does that come from? Well, you have to kill something. Something had to die to cover their shame. Don't you see, even in Genesis 3, there was the idea that that someone someday is going to die to cover our shame. Someone's going to die to rescue us from our sinful condition. So there's grace in the Old Testament, and I can give you lots of other examples of that. There's also judgment in the New Testament. We often miss it because we put focus on the passages in the New Testament that talk about God's grace and God's mercy. But Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, if you really pay attention to that verse, that's one of the scariest things you've ever heard in your life. Because I know there's some of us who talk more than others, and I'm in the category of those who talk more than average. Some of you are quieter, but all of us say careless words. Whether it's what we say when we hit our thumb with a hammer or when somebody cuts us off in the freeway, or what we say when a good friend comes along and mentions someone we don't like. There's all kinds of careless words we say. Think about the fact that every one of those things we'd have to stand before the Lord and give an accounting for. That comes from the mouth of Jesus, not the mouth of Elijah, not the mouth of Jeremiah, not the mouth of Amos, but from Jesus himself. So the the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. Number two, you have to keep the context of the Bible in mind. And this is, the, this is the key. Because so far you've said, okay, I get it, Jeff, but why does it seem like he's so different? I think you have to keep context in mind. Now this may be a bad illustration of this, but this is what I came up with. Let's imagine that you have a friend who's a professor of literature, and you decide, I'm gonna go to her school and listen to her lecture one day. And you go, and it's way over your head, but you're amazed as she's talking about the poetry of Coleridge and Wordsworth and and uh, and Walt Whitman, and, and she's using all these beautiful terms and this lofty language, and she's talking about these majestic ideas, and it's so beautiful, and she's so, so eloquent, and then from there, you go with her as she has lunch with her parents. And her parents are from the country, and they're just in town for the day. And so with her parents, she talks completely different because they're country people, and, and they, they're talking about things that matter on the farm. And they're talking about, what are we going to do with this bunch of bull calves? What are we going to do with them? And so she's talking, about, she's using earthy language. She's... Talking about castration for goodness' sakes. I mean, this is this is not a time for using fifty dollars words. And so her her language, her demeanor, her her vocabulary, everything about her speech and her actions then is different. And then from there, she goes home where she's throwing a birthday party for her five year old son. And so she's got a backyard full of five year olds, and her demeanor there is completely different too, because she's bouncy and she's positive and she's happy. But on the other hand, when one of the little kids falls and starts crying, she takes on a very comforting tone with him. And when two of the little boys get into a tussle, she has to be very stern and I'm going to have to call your parents. And now let me ask you something. Is she a big phony because she changes the way she communicates, because she changes her actions? No, she's, this is how you deal with people. This is how you relate in different circumstances. We all understand that. And could it not be One of the reasons God seems so different in the Old Testament is he's dealing with a very different kind of people in the Old Testament. The ancient world was a brutal world. A brutal world where awful things happened. And and he's dealing with the Israelites who themselves had plenty of problems, but he's guiding them into nationhood as they go into a, a, a nation full of incredibly barbaric people, even by those times, even by the standards of that era. And so harsh things have to be done. Harsh things have to be said. Harsh realities have to be addressed. There's another factor. and I don't know how many of you have heard of this. This, is, this was an important concept when I learned it. And that's called that's what's called progressive revelation. Now listen to me because I don't want you to hear this the wrong way. I don't want to, I don't want to say this the wrong way. But what progressive revelation means is that God over the course of the Bible reveals himself more fully the further on it goes. So he reveals himself over the course of generations, even centuries instead of all at once. He doesn't sit down with Abraham and say, here I am, let me tell you everything there is to know about me, because there's no way one human being can grasp all of that. But what he does instead is he comes to Abraham, a man who, by the way, didn't know God at that point. 75 years old, God comes to him and says, leave where you are now and go to the place I will show you. That's all he gives him. And he says, I will make of you a great nation And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, that's all the information Abraham has about God at that point. And if we're reading the Bible in sequence, that's all the information about God we have. He created the world, and he chose this man Abraham to form a new people. But then we move on hundreds of years into the future, and he takes Moses and he says, Now, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to take the people of Abraham, and I'm going to form a nation out of them. And so he gives them the covenant. Here's who I am. I am the Lord, as we already saw. Merciful and righteous, slow in anger and abounding in love and kindness. He gives them the law. Here's right and wrong. Here's how you know what to do. Here's how you know how to treat your neighbor. Here's how you know how to live life according to the the ways I created this world. And he gives them the sacrificial system. And I know when you read the Old Testament, probably the worst part is reading over all those sacrifices and all those laws, and yet there was a, there was a very uh, profound purpose for all of it. And you only fully realize it when you get to Jesus, because here comes Jesus a thousand years after that, and then we find out that God loves us enough to die for us, that his salvation is by grace through an atoning death. We find out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because he lived it out. He lived the life we should have lived. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system because he's the once and for all sacrifice. He takes the place of the scapegoat on the day of atonement. He takes the place of the Passover lamb. He takes the place of all those bulls and goats and doves uh, in the sacrificial uh, altar of the temple and the tabernacle. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. But then the revelation of God isn't even over then because you have to go on to Acts. And in the book of Acts, you find out that this salvation that Jesus came to bring, that God's been planning since the beginning of the world, well, it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the sons of Abraham. It's for all the world, whoever wants him. And that's what he meant when he said to Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I didn't write this in the notes, but it's not even over there because you go on through the rest of the scriptures and get to Revelation and find out that he's going to rule and reign over this whole world someday. Don't you see how it starts small and it builds and it builds and it builds? It's God's revelation of himself over time. You have to have the New Testament or the Old Testament doesn't make sense. You can't just read the Old Testament by itself. And some people might say, well, then why even read the Old Testament? I used to have that attitude, in fact. I'll just focus on the New Testament because the Old Testament doesn't count anymore. And that couldn't be further than the, from the truth. So why read the Old Testament? Let me just give you a few reasons. There's more. Number one, it's the Bible that Jesus and his apostles read and quoted from. And if you want to understand them fully, if you want to understand the references they're making when they quote the Old Testament, you have to know what they've read. Secondly, Jesus is found in every book of the Bible. You realize that, right? Have you ever read an article or heard a sermon where, where people show you the, the, the how Jesus is found in some form in every book of the Bible? It's fascinating. Jesus is... Uh, the the lamb that took Isaac's place on Mount Moriah in Genesis. He's, uh, he's the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, he is the scapegoat, and so on and so on. You can go through the whole Scripture and see. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In Esther, uh, he's, he's the God who who saves his people from genocide, and on and on to the end of the Bible. He's in every book. and And when you read the Old Testament that way, it changes everything. Number three... There's just a lot of really great stories in the Old Testament that enrich us. They're not just fun to read. And I'll, just, I'll be the first to tell you, there are a handful of stories at least in the Old Testament that if anybody, any movie maker had any sense at all, they'd make a movie out of it. A real movie, right? Not one of those flippant ones that they do when they, when they, they tend to do when they make biblical movies, but one that actually stuck to the text, But it's not just about good stories. It's about we see God in those stories. We learn about God's character through those stories. We learn what kind of God he is. And basically, if you love someone, let me put it this way. If you have a son or a daughter and you find out that, hey, someone wrote a book about them, wouldn't you read that book? Even if it's just about their early years, yeah, you'd read it because it's about someone you love. Well, the Old Testament is about our God, so you'll, you're going to want to read it. It's about Him, even though it's about, so to speak, the early years of God, His progressive revelation. We know more about Him from the New, but, but we're going to want to read that. And then finally, number four, 1 Peter 1.12 says it. It was revealed to them. He's talking about the prophets that wrote the Old Testament. He says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. That's a tantalizing statement. When you realize that that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets and, and all those who wrote down the words of the Old Testament, they some, somewhere along the line, they came to realize, okay, this is not really about me. I'm writing this for future generations. God is going to use this to communicate His glory and His grace and His righteousness and His plan to people who have yet to be born. And so if God wrote this, if God inspired this book for us, how dare we not read it? The Old Testament is meant to be read. There's one more thing on this. When I talk about it, keep context in mind. So when Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and when Moses first meets God at the burning bush, you remember Moses has got all those excuses for why he can't be God's spokesman. It's one of my favorite stories because it just shows Moses' complete humanity. He's trying everything he can to get out of it, which makes him a typical male, right? Um, we love to evade responsibility. And, and finally, he says, well, God, I don't even know your name. I, how can I tell your people about you? How can, I, how can I speak on your behalf? I don't even know who you are. And God says, I'll tell you my name. I am who I am. I am who I am. And that's where we get the covenant name Yahweh or Jehovah, which simply means I am. What does it mean, though? It means I'm God and you're not. I'm gonna do things that you won't necessarily understand. Y'all may remember about 10 years ago, it became very popular for people to say, oh, it is what it is. I know that's probably been around forever, but for a while it seemed like every conversation I had with someone, someone would say, well, you know, it is what it is. My wife's mad at me and I'm mad at her and it is what it is. You know, the economy stinks and I just lost my job and I I wish, wish things would turn around, but you know, it is what it is. And I hated that saying. I heard it so much, I was just so tired of it because it, 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 it bespoke such a sense of helplessness. Well, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And for the same reason I hate it is what it is, I love I am what I am. I am who I am. Because God is God and we're not. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's not a thing we can do to change him. And if we say, well, God, I don't like this that you did, he'll say, I am who I am. And if we say, well, I don't understand, Lord, why this is true or why this was done this way, he'll say, I am who I am. You either trust me or you don't. There are going to be things in the scriptures, just like there are things God does right now, that are going to be confusing, sometimes even disturbing to us, and that doesn't mean he's wrong. When you and I charge God with something, uh, and, and this is... I hate to bring up ugly stuff, but you know, in one of those classic cases where we we see on the news that uh, terrible something terrible has happened on the other side of the world, and we say, "Well, how could God allow that?" The question we have to ask ourselves is: Is it possible God knows more than we do, and that He allowed that for some reason we can't possibly understand, and that maybe in eternity we'll be able to hear His thoughts and know and go, "Well, okay, Lord, I have to admit now, You were right." Is it possible? that everything God does, even things that seem totally indefensible to us, turn out to be right because he's God and we're not. And even the most skeptical person on earth has to admit, you know, if there is a God, he should know more than I do. And so when we get to those passages in the Old Testament, and there are some of them that bother me too, and I have a hard time reading them, and I have a hard time preaching on them, But even those, I have to say, well, I'm just trusting, Lord, that you know what you're doing, that you did that for a reason, that you commanded that for a reason, or you allowed that for your own purpose. I trust you because you died for me, and that tells me who you are, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So that brings us to our last point. If we want to know what God is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. All we have to do is look, at, is look at Jesus. He is God's final word. John 1 says it that way. He is the word which became flesh. So it doesn't take away our responsibility to read the Bible, but it just says that Jesus is the ultimate word of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, and in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're about to start, after after Thanksgiving, we're going to start a series on John chapter 1, leading into Christmas, and about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten. And it amazes me how many religious people, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, believe that Jesus can't possibly be the same as God. And I've talked to Christians who stumble at that point. Well, he's the son, right? But the Bible's very clear that Jesus is fully God. Absolutely fully God. Jesus is God in human flesh. He told Philip in John 14, 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And you know what? That is very good news. Because when you sit and read the four Gospels over and over again, like I have... The more you do that, the more you come to love this person, Jesus. And the more you come to think, boy, I'm sure glad God isn't anything else but the person I read about in the Gospels. Because when we look at Jesus, we see a God who is kind and compassionate. When God came down in human flesh, he spent a lot of time just not sleeping at night because he was up late healing people. He walked out into a crowd, even though he was tired, even though he and his disciples had crossed the Sea of Galilee to get away and get some rest, and he saw a crowd of people, and immediately his thought was, I feel compassion for them, for they are like sheep without a shepherd. That's our God. We had to see him up close in the form of Jesus to know that's what he's like. He's empathetic. When he shows up in Bethany and Lazarus has just died and there's this big crowd of people weeping, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you poor, pathetic people, why don't you just straighten up and... and Suck it up and and be strong. No, Jesus wept. That's the source of the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept because he felt the pain of the people around us, around him. Doesn't it make you glad to know that your God in heaven is empathetic for your pain too? He's merciful, merciful enough to forgive the people who spat in his face while he was hanging on the cross, dying for their sins. I don't know anybody else who has that kind of mercy, but that's our God. He 's also righteous. he managed to live thirty plus years in this world without sinning once. He is a God who is righteous. He is not tempted he's not, he not one who gives in to temptation. He is tempted because the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, even as we are, and yet without sin. He hates evil, especially false religion, especially false teaching, especially those who drive people away from God with their legalism and their self-righteousness. He hates evil. He's courageous. Think about how Jesus stood up to the religious leaders, the people who wanted him dead. He didn't run away. He didn't hide. He boldly stood up to them. That's our God. We also know, because we look at Jesus, that God is not easily understood. He can be baffling at times. Jesus' own followers, his disciples, how many times did they say, well, I just don't get it, Lord? And how many times has Jesus in the gospel said things that preachers like me twist ourselves in knots trying to explain? Now, most of what he said is very understandable, and yet he still has those sayings that we look back and go, okay, I guess I'm going to have to wait to heaven to know that one for sure. God is not somebody you can easily quantify and put in a box and explain in a sentence. We know from Jesus that he stands by the Old Testament because Jesus said, as long as the earth continues, not one jot or tittle will be erased from this book. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But on the other hand, he told us we're not required to keep The Mosaic law anymore. He rendered those uh, dietary laws, for instance, moot. He rendered uh, so much of that moot. It doesn't matter anymore. That's going to be something we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. What do we do with the Old Testament law? What what parts of it apply to us and what don't? But we know that doesn't all apply to us anymore. So studying the life of Jesus tells us a lot about how to understand the Old Testament. Just because God recorded something in the Old Testament doesn't mean he endorses it. That's an important note to remember. There are lots of stories in the Old Testament we read and we say, boy, that's horrible. Jehu comes in and kills the family of Ahab Uh, with such relish they pile up stacks of heads outside a city. Did God endorse that? No, but he recorded it in his word. David had multiple wives. David did awful things. Did God endorse that? No, but... He recorded it. Joseph, one of my favorite stories, is the story of of Joseph, uh, and he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And yet, when you read that, when you read that story, don't you kind of sympathize with those brothers? Don't you think, boy, if he was my little brother, I'd I'd have done that too? Joseph was not, he kind of deserved what he got, right? So, Reading the scriptures and reading the story of Joseph doesn't mean that I should walk around telling people, I had a dream, you're going to bow at my feet. It's recorded in the Bible, but that doesn't mean we should do it. And and the ultimate example of that is when you read the Psalms, there are certain Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms. Now That's a word we've made up, it's not in the Bible. But those are the Psalms in which the psalmist prays for bad things to happen to somebody else. I know you've seen these, Right? And they're vivid. I mean, he's very specific about the things he's asking God to do. And if you read that, and that's all you read of the Bible, then you can think, well, then God wants me to pray that way too. And then you get to the New Testament, and you see Jesus, and Jesus says, no, love your enemies, and pray for those who hate you. That doesn't mean that those psalms are, are wrong. Those psalms are the actual thoughts of real people, and God's recording them just means that he has a higher way for us. And that is the path of forgiveness, the path of of love. Most of all, we study Jesus because he helps us with the two most important facts that anybody can know. Those are that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to fear, but we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. We're so bad that the Son of God had to die to rescue us, but we're so loved that he did it for the joy set before him. And so that's why we study Jesus, and that's how Jesus makes the Old Testament make sense for us. And I know, I know that in however long I've been talking, 20, 25 minutes, I haven't answered all your questions. But I hope, I hope that's helped. And My encouragement to you is keep on reading, keep on studying. We're going to talk about this in my first sermon in 2020. We're going to, talk, we're going to kind of recap this, next, this last year. And one of the things I'm going to say is reading the Bible through in a year isn't something everybody needs to do every year. There are some folks that just aren't wired to where that's helpful for them. Some people do better when they read small chunks of the Bible at a time. Others do fine reading three and four chapters a day. You should do what works best for you. I just think it was good for us to do it once because every Christian ought to do it at least once. And every Christian ought to spend time not just in the books of the Bible they love, but in some of those books that they don't love quite so much. So I hope it's been instructive for you to that extent. God's Word, God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So don't quit studying it, but just continue to study it with greater and greater devotion and it will bear fruit in your life. Let me pray for us, Heavenly Father. We're thankful for Your Word and we're thankful for uh, what it reveals to us about You. And Lord, we we admit there are parts of it that uh, that bother us, uh, parts of it that confuse us, parts of it that we just have to we just have to trust that You know things that we don't and, and we'll understand it better by and by. But Lord, I pray in the meantime we would we would focus on the things we do understand and obeying them and give us faith to uh, absorb and grow in the things we don't understand. I pray, Lord, that this would be a church in which we teach the word effectively, but also that in which we together live out your word. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.